Well, it is good to be here. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. I'm going to start a new series today based on the life uh, of Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, and the, the nativity story is seen through her eyes. And found in Luke, uh, Luke's nativity story, Mary is the main character. You barely even hear about Joseph. But uh, I want to start by telling a story there's this woman who went to the dentist, and this was a new dentist. She'd never been to him before, and as she sat in the examining room waiting for the dentist to come by and give her, her examination, she noticed his name on the uh, diploma on the wall, and she knew his last name. She had made the appointment, but she hadn't seen his full name yet. But when she read his full name, she thought, you know, that's really funny. Here's a guy I went to high school with with that exact same name, and she thought back to him. Hadn't thought of him in a long time. She thought back to him. She thought, you know, he was... He was a good-looking guy. I mean, he was tall and buff and, you know, really in good shape, and he had this wavy dark hair and blue eyes and his brilliant smile. Every girl was crazy about him. I, you know, her heart was beating faster just thinking about him. She was thinking, man, what if this is the same guy? And then he walked in, and all those thoughts just sort of dissipated because this guy was kind of squishy around the middle and didn't have much hair, but what he had was gray, and she thought, well, he's way too old to be the guy I'm thinking of, to be somebody I graduated with. But then again, just in case, as soon as the exam was done, she said, well, doctor, um, I just need to ask, did you happen to go to Central High School? He said, well, as a matter of fact, I did. She said, well, what year did he graduate? Did you graduate? And he said, well, 1988. And, he, and she said, really? This is amazing. You were in my class. And he looked at her and he said, well, what did you teach? <laughs> yeah, sometimes life can really be humbling. And uh, this may be a bit of a stretch, but I hope that you have the humility to accept. Some of the things I'm going to talk about today, it's about faith. I mean, we're all religious people, most of us at least. If you're not religious, I'm glad you're here today. I hope, I hope, that, you, uh, hope that you hear something that changes your mind. But we may think we know all there is to know about faith, but in my experience, most religious people don't really even understand what faith is. And I say that faith, more than anything else, is the determining factor, the determining virtue that, that decides whether you live a life of joy and purpose and significance or a life of disappointment and regret. Faith makes the difference. And faith is not, like most people think it is, just an intellectual belief in a set of religious propositions. Faith is not some kind of transaction you perform that gets you into heaven when you die. Faith is not you reading a list of wishes to an invisible God just in case it works. Faith is something far more important and far more changing, far more life-changing. We're going to look here today in our first look at Mary. We're going to look at a decision she made on the day she first realized her purpose in life, a choice that I want all of us to make this morning, a choice that some of you have never really, really confronted. You're going to have that opportunity before we get done today. Now, before we get into the Scripture, I want to give you kind of a picture of who Mary was because we don't know a lot about Mary from Scripture, but what we do know combined with what we know from history and the culture of first century Israel tells us a few things about this young woman. First of all, she was very, very young, probably 13, 15 at most. That's, that's the age that young Israelite girls got married in the first century. So think about 13-year-old girls you know. Think about junior high age girls you know. Amazing, isn't it, that God would choose someone so young? 
She was born in the town of Nazareth, a town so insignificant it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament, a town which was looked down upon. There was a saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? She was born in a poor family. She grew up, I'm sure, serving her mother and father and her brothers if she had any. Um, she grew up probably dreaming of the day someday when she would have a husband and a home of her own that she would keep and, and would raise uh, good, God-fearing young children. She was raised steeped in the Torah, the Word of God, and that was her world, this tiny little town in a, in a nation far away. Probably once a year she went to Jerusalem, and that was the most exciting part of her year. And then one day, her father came to her and said, Mary, I found you a husband. And she knew what that meant. This is what happened to young Israelite girls. Her dad had sat down with another young man's dad, and they had negotiated a deal. The, the father of this groom, Joseph was his name, had, had agreed to a bride price that he would pay Mary's father. And what that meant is from that day forward, this young man, Joseph, would begin preparing a home for them to live in. He would, if he had to build it, he would build it himself. If he had to renovate it, he would do that. But however long it took to prepare that home, whether it was a month or a year or somewhere in between, that's how long they were betrothed. And that term betrothed is a little different from our engagement. Joseph didn't buy her a ring, and they weren't just, you know, taking pictures together in the park. This was, she was bound to him for life. Only a divorce could separate them, a divorce or death. So she belonged to Joseph, even though they weren't living as husband and wife yet. And on that day, whenever that house would be prepared, whenever Joseph was through his preparation, this is how it went. He would gather some friends and family, and they would go in procession to Mary's parents' house, and they would take her from that home, and they would walk in this festal procession to Joseph's parents' house, and the house would be empty. They would go in alone. They would consummate the marriage, and then that would begin the seven days of wedding feast. At the end of the feast... They would move into that house that he had prepared, and that would be the beginning of her new, new life. Now, you can imagine as a young girl how she must have felt about this. The Bible doesn't tell us. doesn't tell us if they knew each other or not. We can imagine in a town the size of Nazareth, they were probably acquainted. But I'm sure she had never looked at him before the way she did now. So for those next several weeks and months, I'm sure she looked carefully at Joseph. Every time he was around, every time they happened to bump into each other, well, what does he really look like? I've never really noticed him. How does he treat others? How does he talk to older adults and, and little kids and, and animals? Is he kind? Is he compassionate? Is he, is he temperamental? Is he moody? Is he harsh? Is he funny? What kind of man will I be living with? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the conversation she must have had with her mother? Tell me, Mom, I need to hear about this wedding night. What is it going to be like? Those must have been very frank and very, very engrossing conversations. I'm sure that she felt a little excited. Because it meant she was becoming an adult. She was going to have her own home that she could keep in the way she wanted. She was going to have children of her own, God willing. She was going to be able to raise children and, and have a place in society. Right now, she was no one. But now she would, she would have a family that would be her, her gift to Israel, her gift to the community. She must have been anxious, too. How, how would this man treat her? What would life be like there? And, and how many times would she wish in the middle of the night that she could go crawl into bed next to her mom and dad but wouldn't be able to? How many times would she miss being able to sit down at the end of the day in front of a meal that her mother had prepared and laugh with her brothers and sisters and wouldn't be able to because now it would just be her and this man who was now pretty much a stranger? And we look at that and we think, boy, what a strange way to do things. And yet that was life as usual in first century Israel. And then, and then something happened that was very, very not 
the usual. And that's what we're reading about today. Verse 26 of Luke 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, now time out, Elizabeth is the cousin of Mary, and she is going to be the mother of John the Baptist. I've always loved the fact that there is a John the Baptist in the Bible. There is not a Philip the Methodist. There's not a Bubba the Episcopalian. There's, well, anyway. Uh, So mother of John the Baptist is pregnant, and he's measuring time based on the the length of her pregnancy. Just wanted to give you that background before we move on. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. And in other translations, the ones that I grew up with, it says, for nothing will be impossible with God. That's how it translates verse 37. We'll get to verse 38 in just a moment. But first, I want to talk to you for a moment about faith and about the faith of Mary. A lot of us read this and we think, okay, Mary is this exemplary person of faith because she, ha- she was able to believe that God could conceive a child in her womb in an extraordinary way, a, a virgin birth. And yes, that is amazing. But that's not really what's amazing about Mary's faith. Let's talk about faith for a moment because in, in, because of what I do, people talk to me about faith a lot. I hear a lot of sermons about it, songs. I read a lot of things about it from people religious and irreligious. And here's what I've decided. I think most people, when, if you ask them what is faith, they would say, well, it's believing in something in spite of all the available evidence. It's believing in something no matter what your eyes tell you, no matter what your senses tell you, no matter what the evidence is, it's just choosing to believe. And you can say in that regard that faith in God is just like faith in, in um, you know, Superman or, or, or fairies or trolls or whatever. It's, it's just choosing to believe in something. And for irreligious people, they look at it that way, and they're kind of divided on whether it's a good or a bad thing. Some will say, well, you know, the world would be better if everyone would just quit believing in fairy tales and just accept the real world. And others are more, are more generous with their terms. They'll say things like, and maybe you've heard this, you know, I wish that I could have faith like you do. I wish I could believe like you do. And it sounds like a compliment, but what it really is is a condescending way of saying, you know, it's nice that you can live in a fantasy world, but some of us have to be adults and live in the real world. And there's an arrogance, even among us, even among us who are religious. When we think about people like Mary, we think, you know, we're just smarter than they were back then. Sure, Mary believed that all this was possible, Because she was an ancient person, she was a primitive person in her thinking, so she just believed whatever she was told. But that's not what the story shows us. I want to point something out to you. In verse 29, 
It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words. That's not surprising. Anybody, you read the scriptures, anytime anyone had an encounter with an angel, it was always deeply disturbing. It was terrifying, in fact. That's why angels usually had to say, fear not. But look at what it says next. It says, and she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. That term wondered, Luke is using a word in Greek that's actually an accounting term. It means to add things up. It means to figure things out. So what Mary was doing was thinking this through. Here's an angel before her, and he's saying all this fantastic stuff. He says, you're going to be the mother of the guy who we will call the son of the Most High. He's going to inherit the throne of his father David. Well, that's, those terms are clear. He's going to be the Messiah. And, and, uh, and his name will be Jesus. Well, she recognized that name. It's a, it's a Hebrew word that means God saves. This is going to be an important child. She was figuring things out. Does this make sense? Is this real? Notice also that she asks the question, well, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, here's an interesting thing. We mentioned a while ago uh, John the Baptist's parents. Well, Luke tells the story a few verses earlier of Gabriel, the same angel, going to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, who was a priest of Israel. And he interrupted him in the midst of his priestly duties in the temple. And he told him, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a baby. You're supposed to name him John. And Zechariah says, how can this be? His point is, my wife is an old woman. We've never been able to have kids. How can this happen? And Gabriel was so offended at his lack of faith that he struck John mute until the day of the child's birth. And curiously, Elizabeth didn't seem to complain about her husband not being able to speak. I don't know. But the interesting thing for me is, here's Zechariah who expresses a little doubt and God punishes him. Six months later, Mary expresses almost the same, in almost the same words, the same, the same, seemingly the same doubt, and she's not punished at all. Does that bother anybody else? And Tim Keller has a good explanation, I think, for this. He says, you know, we don't know what was in their hearts. God did. God chose to punish Zechariah, but not Mary. Therefore, it's obvious to him and to me that Mary's doubt was different from Zechariah's doubt because there are different kinds of doubt. There's the doubt that's very skeptical, that's very uh, show-me, that's essentially says, I don't want to believe what you're saying because if that's true, it's going to change my life in uncomfortable ways. I don't want to believe what you're saying because I like reality as I currently understand it. This is why, for instance, racial prejudice is so hard. People who like believing that they are superior to this group over here don't want to be challenged on that because it's comfortable believing that way. I'll give you another example. I read an interview with an atheist once who, who shared why he didn't believe in God. And after sharing several intellectual, scientific reasons, his last one, he said, but mainly I don't believe in God because I don't want to believe in God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to work that way. And I thought that was a very revealing statement. He was saying, listen, I choose to believe that the universe works in such a way that there's not somebody in charge of it, that it's more random and it's about us. It just kind of revealed to me the faith it took for him to remain in his atheism. That's one kind of doubt. It's a very resistant kind of doubt. I want to stay the way I am. Whereas there's a second kind of doubt that's a healthy skepticism that says, I'm not going to believe just anything someone says to me. I will adjust my life in accordance to the truth. I'm not stubborn, but I have to know that it's true. And what Mary is saying is, listen, I I realize you're an angel. This is very impressive. But before I believe that God is going to do something that's never been done before, I want to know for sure this is God. 
that is, a, that is a wise thing for a teenage girl to say. That is a wise thing for you to say. So if I or somebody else stands behind this pulpit and, and speaks in some eloquent way, something you've never heard before, and you think, well, I just don't know if that's true, don't believe it until you check it against God's Word. That is healthy skepticism. See the two kinds of doubt there? So again, Mary is not, and faith is not blindly believing in something. It's, it's thinking things through. Now, let's look at another kind of faith, and this is the kind of faith that's very prevalent and I would say rampant among religious circles, among Christians in America, and that is a faith that's basically magic. It's faith that says, if I want something from God, I can make it happen if I just believe with enough conviction. If I pray, and I pray long enough and hard enough, and I believe in my heart He's going to give it to me, then He will give it to me, whether it's healing for me or, or my child or my loved one, whether it's a new job or a, or a, a spouse or a, or a different spouse or whatever. I, I can have it. I just have to ask and believe. And if you've been paying attention, you hear that kind of stuff said over and over again. The problem with that teaching is that it distorts who God is. You see, if, if you follow that to its logical conclusion, it means that God works for you, not the other way around. That you can make God do something He doesn't want to do. That if you just believe hard enough, He might be resistant to giving you something, but, but you'll talk Him into it. And I don't know about you, but it scares me to death to think that we could live in a universe with a God that wishy-washy. Fortunately, the God of Scripture isn't that way. The God of Scripture does answer prayer. The God of Scripture does say, my people are praying and this fits in with my plan, therefore I will give them what they've asked for. Or my people are praying and they have found what I wanted to do anyway and I will bless them with the answer to their prayers because they prayed according to my spirit. But he also sometimes says no. Anybody else ever had God say no to some of your prayers? And sometimes, sometimes, in fact, often, God moves in ways that we didn't ask for, that we didn't anticipate, that we never could have expected. And that's the case here. You notice Mary is surprised to hear this. She didn't pray, Lord, make me the mother of, of your Messiah. She didn't ask for this. Folks, most of the time, most of our, most of our interactions with God will be saying, Lord, I don't really understand what you're doing here but show me what to do next. And that's what Mary does right here. So what is faith? What is faith? Faith is a decision. Faith is a choice to trust. In fact, let me just say it this way. Faith is anytime you choose to trust someone or something with your life or with something precious to you. Faith is choosing to trust someone or something with your life or something precious to you. And, and having said that, everybody in the world has faith. It's not just religious or irreligious people. Everybody has faith. It's just a question of what do you have faith in. If you get on an airplane, that means you have faith in the craftsmanship of that plane, in the skill of the pilot and the, and the skill of the air traffic controller. You have faith. You're putting your life in their hands. If you go to a restaurant after church today, you have faith that the, the cook is going to wash his hands before he prepares your meal, that the, the waiter is not going to drop your food and then pick it up and put it right back on the plate or, or lick your hamburger bun just for fun. Enjoy lunch, by the way. <laughs> you coming to church here today, in spite of all this nasty weather, you're expressing faith that coming here, going to all the trouble to come here is going to be worth your time. And right now, some of you are thinking, I've made a big mistake. Even atheists have faith. An atheist has faith that his mind is right when he says there is no God, even though 
The, the vast majority of human beings through all civilizations throughout history have known there is a God. He's, he's, he's willing to say, I have faith that I'm right and everyone else is wrong. It takes tremendous faith to hold on to your atheistic beliefs. Folks, you need to understand something. Faith is important. Faith is key. And misplaced faith can be tragic. I knew a guy once who was a financial advisor to wealthy people. In fact, most of his clients were college basketball coaches. I could name some of the people who invested their money with him, and and if you're a sports fan at all, you'd recognize them. Um, I knew this guy because one of our friends worked for him, and we we weren't really close, but it was the kind of thing where he he owned a... uh, a luxury box at University of Houston basketball games. And so when we'd go, sometimes our friend would say, hey, um, you can join us in the suite today. And that was kind of cool. You know, sit and eat free nachos and drink free Coke and Dr. Pepper and sit high up in luxury above all the peons down below watching the basketball game like common folk. And, and it was really nice. And whenever we'd meet him, he was this really generous guy, really gracious. He gave a lot to charity. We thought, what a good person. Was it turned out... Um, the federal government found out eventually what he was actually doing with all those millions of dollars that had been entrusted to him. And at that point, his, his pyramid scheme collapsed and all that money was gone. And all these, all these famous coaches, all these wealthy people lost everything, all their savings. And the way they found out it had gone down is he took his own life before the feds could arrest him. And that's how they found out that they had been betrayed. Misplaced faith is devastating. Putting your faith in the wrong person, the wrong thing, can cost you everything. And having said that, here's Mary. Here's Mary, this young woman who believes in God. She's raised in a Jewish home. She's been steeped in the Torah. She's said the prayers. She's been to the sacrifices. But she's never really had to trust Him. She's like a lot of us. She's never really risked anything on her belief until today. When God shows up uninvited, and says, I want you to do this for me. I want you to do this for me. Now, tell, tell you what, she could say no. People all through the Scriptures have said no to God. If she would have said no, God would have gone to someone else, and we'd be hearing about someone else as the mother of, of Jesus. You and I say no to God every day. Every time we choose to do things our own way, we call that sin. Mary could have said no and was probably tempted to say no. This was a young woman who had a life planned out for herself. She didn't have any details. No details about what was going to happen if she said yes. What would happen with with, uh, Joseph? Would he believe her story about an angelic visit and this, this immaculate conception inside her womb? Or would he believe the more logical story that you and I would probably believe in? What about the town of Nazareth? Would they... Would they continue to receive her or would she be cast out? Would she have to raise this child on her own, which would be nearly impossible in that world? Would she be threatened with stoning? How could she, a young girl, answer the questions of a, of a child who would grow up to rule the world? How could, she, how could she do that? And she didn't even know the half of what she would see and experience. Having said all that, here's Mary's answer. Verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. In the, in the King James, it says, let it be. Let it be unto me according to your word, O Lord. And I love that. That's her saying, I don't know all the answers. I don't know what's going to happen. 
I just know my God has asked me to do something and I am saying yes. I don't know what it will mean. I don't know how hard it will be. I don't know where this will take me or how much this will cost me. I'm just writing God a blank check. How many times have you ever written someone a blank check? Is that a terrifying thought or what? You hand them that check and say, just fill in the amount later on. You better trust that person. Mary's giving God a blank check with her life. Contrast Mary, if you know the Bible well, contrast Mary to Moses. Remember the story? Moses is out tending a sheep, 80-year-old man, raised with royalty in Egypt. Now he's raised a family of his own out in the deserts of Midian. Tending his sheep, he suddenly sees this burning bush. God speaks to him and says, I want you to lead my people to freedom. And Moses says, well, I can think of about nine different reasons why you shouldn't choose me, Lord. In fact, here they are. And he begins to list them. And when he runs out of excuses, he said, Lord, could you please choose someone else? That's Moses, a hero. Here's Mary being asked to do something no less momentous. And she's a teenage girl. And she simply says, okay, it's not what I had planned, but if it's what you have planned, Lord, sign me up. I'm down. Let's do it. That's faith. And and we're all tempted to say, wow, what an amazing young woman. No wonder God chose her. We're tempted to venerate her and put pictures of her on our walls. I want you to know something. Faith is not like height. Faith is not like uh, the natural ability to shoot a basketball or, or draw a picture or work complex equations. Faith is a decision. None of us is born with faith. None of us has naturally more faith than anybody else. Faith is a choice. And Mary on this day chose to trust God. And that's a decision that many of us have never really made. And you say, well, I was baptized. I was, what did that really cost you? You prayed the prayer. You, you got baptized because you knew if you didn't, you miss out on heaven. Good job. Great decision. I commend you. But that's not the kind of faith we're talking about. I believe that all of us All of us need to put ourselves in Mary's shoes today and say to the Lord, Lord, whatever you say, I want to do it. In fact, that's the way I want to close today, a little bit unusually. So I'm going to have us bow our heads and close our eyes in just a moment. And I'm going to lead you through three prayers, okay? And you pray them silently to the Lord. I don't need you to raise your hand or come forward unless God leads you to do so. This is just between you and him. But I'm challenging you to pray three scary prayers to God today, in essence saying, Lord, I'm giving it to you. Because listen, before we do it, most of us, if we're honest, in fact, all of us who are honest, would have to admit most of my religious activity, most of my prayer life, most of my coming to church, most of my obeying the commands of Scripture is really my sneaky way of trying to get God to give me the life I want. I mean, can we admit that? I don't need an amen, but, you know, some kind of assent would be good. So right now, let's give God the opposite, all right? So bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to lead you through three prayers. You pray them silently if you feel led. The first, in the first prayer, I, I'm asking you, I'm challenging you to pray something like this. Lord, I give you all my dreams and wishes, and Lord, whatever it is that's fondest in my heart, whether it's healing or, or, or more money or to get married or for my marriage to improve or, or for whatever I'm worried about right now, I just give it to you, and if you choose not to give it to me the way I want I will still trust you. In fact, if you don't want it for me, then then I don't want it for me either. 
Would you pray something like that right now? Would you surrender your wishes to him right now? That's not easy to do. I, 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 my second challenge to you is that you would just give him control of your life. Just say to him, you may have done this before, but you can't do it too often. Just say, Lord, wherever you want me to go and whatever you want me to do and whoever you want me to be, I want to be that for you. Lord, just take me where you want. Would you pray something like that to him right now? And then finally, I want you to just just pray to him and ask him, what is there in my life that you've already said to me that I haven't obeyed? What is there that I need to catch up on? We can't wait until Angel Gabriel shows up and gives us a mission. There's a lot of things that he's already told us we haven't done yet. Pray that God would reveal to you whatever there is in your life that you still have yet to obey him in. Would you do that right now? Lord God, increase our faith. Show us what you want us to do, what you want us to be. Help us to write you a blank check every day. Hear our prayer, Lord. Make us people of true faith who go the distance for you. In Jesus' name, amen.